bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. And this week on the pod, we are going to be talking about American politics for the first time in a very long time. Then we're going to move to Ontario politics. Doug Ford said he was going to raise the minimum wage in January. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get into it, Erica, how are you? I'm good. I'm in Toronto right now. So recording from the hotel room that you could see back here. Yeah, looks great. I mean... Toronto's always very frustrating to enter Mm. and I don't get it. I'm just like, the train was 30 minutes late. I'm like, but it's a five hour trip. (laughs) Now, if we had better train service, that would be nice. You know, Mm. with reliable Wi-Fi, how is it that we are at least 21 years into peak internet Mm -hmm. and Vita can't get that shit straight? It's baffling to me. I don't understand this. I mean, it's also, it's also kind of like how Wi-Fi on airplanes, one, is so expensive, and then two, when you do pay for it, it doesn't work either. Like, in that rate, just don't offer it, and we'll just don't all bring it. books. I can bring, I would, I, I just don't offer it if it doesn't work. If you can't have reliable Wi-Fi, then I'll use my data. I'm fine with it. I pay for it anyway. So I'm purely on data. But otherwise, I'm just like, I don't get it. So here are my impression of Toronto. I'm sorry, but this city's going downhill. I'm sorry. The last time I was in Toronto was 2019, where I got racially profiled by hot dogs. Right. Right. So my love for Toronto is not a love at all. It's Mm. like I'm ambivalent. I'm just like, but it's been a really like, granted, I've only been here like 24 hours, but like people are being nice and friendly and I think I don't know them yeah no (laughs) I honestly think it's just because like my whole headspace Mm. and Mm -hmm. what I'm putting out there is just different yeah it's it's a little bit like laws of attraction right like you get back what you put out and you receive what you put out right I also want to say shout out to Ifa Musa who I had a great time with last night and who works for CBC. I know her from Ottawa and whose spirit and um, effervescence and straight talk and salient (laughs) advice I miss. Oh, that's so nice. So um, did you read or listen to anything interesting on the train? Oh, pivot. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was okay. So remember when you texted me and you were like, this this episode of pivot is really good yeah it's really good okay so i am a fan of pivot because i'm a fan of kara swisher kara swisher a goddess who if you know anything about tech read anything about tech you've come across her she's probably the most the number one tech journalist in america she's the og she really is you know she was there and you know being a woman in that field she takes no shit Love it. Her interview with Mark Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. you need to go, like, everybody should go back and hear that. Yeah, it was 2015, 2016-ish. Yeah, I think it's 2016-ish. Yeah, um, it's iconic. It is. Because she was the first one 
to actually hold his feet to the fire. Yeah. It was after Cambridge Analytica. So it must have been 2016, 17 area. Mm-hmm. I remember the time when, which was not so long ago, when the liberals came in and their whole thing was we're tech bros. That was not so long ago in 2015. It makes me realize that the reason that we have these all powerful companies is because we had a government that just let them run wild. No mm-hmm. taxation or very little taxation, all in the name of innovation. Mm-hmm. Then there was this belief that tech was going to solve everything, which I don't know who thought that was going to happen. I never believed that. So mm-hmm. like there was this, this idea that tech was this omnipotent force for good, no matter how it was applied. Yeah. And Kara Swisher, coming back to Kara, really, really punctured that balloon early. And I respect that because mm-hmm. look where we are now. Yeah, and the, in the interview just went so poorly for Mark Zuckerberg that he has not spoken to her since. Good. Um, and, and you know what? She doesn't give a fuck. This, you know what the other thing I like about Kara Swisher is she's not in it for the access. No. She is not here for access. If you don't no. talk to Kara Swisher... She'll find someone else who'll, who'll talk to her. Yeah. And you just look like a punk bitch. Well, it just means that like you're not the one driving your own narrative and in control of your own narrative, which is really what the biggest, like most basic PR is, is controlling your narrative. And if anyone who's watching Succession is paying attention, you're seeing that in the show. Mm -hmm. But Mark Zuckerberg and their PR people don't really talk to her. So she's left to talk to employees. And so the employees are the ones who are being able to tell their stories and have their narratives being shared. And then Facebook is left to like clean up uh, the, the debris. The executives are there left to kind of clean up and so how, manage that risk. So how come we haven't heard from Sheryl Sandberg? <sighs> they really are keeping her under wraps. They really are. I have a lot of questions about it. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions about the absence of Sheryl Sandberg. A lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was also in, in another episode of Pivot where they were talking about Sheryl Sandberg and how she her, she basically is just like thrown her. She had a very good reputation before she went into into Facebook at Yahoo and whatever, and it just like completely ruined her reputation. She wanted to ruin her reputation. Apparently, she was in it for herself. She was in it for herself and convinced a whole bunch of white women that it was their fault while they were not getting ahead because they weren't assertive enough. Like the misogyny of that alone. Maybe there, and maybe there is like a a sliver of truth to it, but it's not like an ethos. No, but she made it seem like, oh, it's your fault. You Mm -hmm. need to go out and it's like, bitch, get the fuck out of here. I'm not taking, I'm not taking advice from you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cause what can she tell a racialized woman? Oh, you're not Not hard enough. Fuck you. (laughs) Black women were like, really? (laughs) You know what I mean? We call that bullshit out early, you know, and then what happened? Then Cambridge Analytica happened and then they and then Cheryl Sandberg went away. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. I would love to wait. Has Kara Swisher interviewed Cheryl Sandberg? I'm not sure. I don't think I don't think so, so but I would love to hear that. R.I.P. Cheryl Sandberg. <laughs> the nail in the coffin. Bam. Let's get into it. 
So this week in feminism, we're going to start off with talking about the elections that took place across America on November 2nd. The Virginia gubernatorial election was held on that date, uh, one of many elections that we'll be talking about. And the gubernatorial election is to elect the next governor. And so the election, the incumbent and current Democratic governor, Ralph Northam, was ineligible to run for re-election because the Constitution of Virginia prohibits governors from serving two consecutive terms. And so the race saw Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin defeating former Democratic governor Terry McAuliffe. And so, yes, you heard that correctly. The former governor, Terry McAuliffe, ran for a kind of re-election. He was the governor prior to Ralph Northam. And as I said, Glenn Youngkin defeated him to become the 74th governor of Virginia, making him the first Republican to win a statewide election in Virginia since 2009 and only the fourth to win the governorship in 40 years. Republicans also flipped the lieutenant governor and attorney general races, which were also held on November 2nd. And so this was a big race that was being watched across American politics. And one of the issues that was at play was critical race theory, which you may have seen on cable news. And critical race theory is basically analysis of American society must take into account its history of racism and the role that race has played in shaping attitudes and institutions. Following 24 hours after Terry McAuliffe's defeat, a bipartisan consensus was already emerging about what happened. And part of that was Republican Glenn Youngkin's message about the evils of critical race theory in schools. And Republicans have successfully, since Biden's election in 2020, really tied that as an issue to Democrats. And so the critical race theory focused analysis is convenient for both Republicans and Democrats. For Republicans, it's proof that they're on the winning side of America's seemingly endless culture wars. And for Democrats, it's more evidence that Republicans are the party of white backlash, or as Erica likes to refer to it, the white lash and anti-Blackness. The election returns from Virginia show a uniform swing against McAuliffe, not an especially strong backlash in areas where critical race theory was an especially prominent issue. You know, there was another election on the second in New Jersey for the governor also. And there was a similarly sized swing against Democrats, despite critical race theory not being a part of that campaign. But in Virginia, the exit polls showed a focus on education and critical race theory not being necessarily compelling evidence against this explanation of critical race theory being a driving force. In general, early exit polls have serious reliability problems that undermine our ability to draw significant conclusions from them, such as the case with exit polls generally. Issue polling often reflects what partisans have heard more than their reasons for voting. So many of the people who said critical race theory was important were likely going to vote for a Republican like Glenn Youngkin, no matter what, and then latched on to critical race theory as an explanation. And so a good test of this theory is these 2021 elections. If we compare Virginia to New Jersey in a state 
New Jersey that is bluer than Virginia, incumbent Governor Phil Murphy barely hung on against Republican Jack Chiarelli. Given that New Jersey is more Democratic than Virginia, these results suggest that Republican gains were roughly similar in each state and maybe even larger in New Jersey, despite some notable differences in campaign topics. So- This is really interesting. So in our show notes, we actually have a couple, one article talking about exit polls uh, from, I think it's from 538. And another one talking about the pathologies of studying public opinion, political communication and democratic responsiveness. So honestly, like these two pieces talk more about how misleading exit polling can be, you know, how fraught studying political intentions, political polling in itself is just not a, (laughs) I'm sorry, it's not as science, it is scientific, yes, but it's not as accurate as people latch on to. And I think what you just explained is the reason why. The other thing too is that critical, I will give it to Republicans, I'm sorry, I gotta give it to Republicans. I know. And and you know what, you gotta give credit where it's due, their Mm -hmm. strategy, Woo. I mean, it's impressive. You know why? Because what basically what they're doing is they're taking all the low-hanging fruit that people are, are anxious about, mm-hmm. upset about, don't understand, and aren't exposed to, and they're forming this sort of, they're introducing it to people in their way yeah. with their twist, yeah. right? And what that does is, is it brings people into the political fold who would Mm -hmm. otherwise be outside. And I think that is brilliant because you're adding new voters who maybe had been disaffected and the Republicans are also better at organizing for local races. Mm -hmm. So they're better at the groundswell and the ground game than Democrats are. Do you know that in the Mm -hmm. Biden election, the Democrats didn't organize. It was local groups that organized for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. The Democrats literally, I, I wouldn't say they did nothing, but I think their sort of ground game, and the liberals did this too, the liberals' ground game is just impressive, right? Mm-hmm. Compared to everybody else. Like the conservatives may raise more money, but the liberals really have the, the infrastructure of a ground game, right? The Democrats do not. Yeah. And they haven't, I remember reading in The New Republic about how they dismantle Obama's ground game. Like Obama had a really good infrastructure set up and they just dismantled it after the 2009 election. So much so that they had to scramble back and try Mm -hmm. to piece it together in 2012 when they dismantled it again. The Republicans would never do that. They would morph it into something. And it's that sort of, those sort of difference in strategies and tactics that make like, I counted out the Republicans before. I will never do that again Mm -hmm. because now I see where their strengths are. And I'm like, if I'm a Democrat, I don't care what the demographics are. If you don't have the organization and you don't put money and effort into the organization, you're fucked. You're fucked. Yeah. And that's why you don't have Democratic, more Democratic governors. You don't have more Democratic state reps. You don't have more Democratic. Like all of these things are ground up, not top down. And I feel like the Democrats feel like this top down thing. I feel like that's how they treat these national elections. 
Yeah, you've definitely mentioned the the dismantling of the Obama infrastructure before. I don't remember when, probably last year sometime during the 2020 election. That's definitely the case. And I do wonder if some of that is because Republicans are happy to rally behind whoever their candidate is. You know, like everyone was like, fuck, we don't want Trump as, you know, the candidate, but like, we're all just going to pull up our bootstraps, suck it up. And like, we're going to go all in. Whereas when Biden won the nomination for the Democrats, everyone was like, fuck, I don't want to support Biden. I don't want to do this. And so because you've got progressives and more moderate Democrats constantly at odds with each other, when one of their candidates wins the nomination, they then pull all of their infrastructure out. You know, there's just like a, I think a lack of cohesiveness in terms of like the Democrats. Yeah, there is. There is. The Democrats seem more institutional in the way they handle things. Yeah. And the Republicans aren't, obviously. Yeah. It's just, I'm sorry. It's just impressive. I, 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 what they're spreading is toxic. What they're spreading is shit and whatever. But you got to admire, or I admire, <laughs> the, their, their tactics and strategies and mm-hmm. how they're dealing with it. And this is a party that knows that their base is just naturally shrinking. Mm-hmm. But I think you know? what you made it, I mean, you made a really good point at that start of that with, where you're talking about they were playing on people's fears. And I think that politics was always driven by people, how they feel about the economy and how, whether they feel like they're doing good, not necessarily whether they actually are. And I think we're kind of, we know that inflation rates are very high. We know that economically people aren't feeling the most secure but that's across the political spectrum and now we're we're moving on from economic anxiety into cultural anxiety mm-hmm. because really- fo- especially following like the the black lives matter protests when north america and i guess kind of globally there were protests and people were like oh no all these other people matter too not just white people and pe- mm-hmm. white a lot of white conservatives felt very threatened by that Oh, I'm sure I'm sure those protests scared a whole bunch of white people because anytime people of color seem like they have a little bit of power, that scares white people. All right, Erica, that does it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, because let me tell you, you missed a bunch of conversation about U.S. politics. You also missed us talking about Doug Ford and his efforts to get reelected by raising the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And you're also missing our show notes, which are extremely comprehensive. So Erica, great job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I take show notes very seriously. I, you know this, I always have. Yes. So y'all better use them. Yes. And so just a reminder to subscribe, head to badbitchypodcast.substack.com. You can subscribe for as little as $7 a month, $75 a year, or if you're feeling particularly generous, $200 to be a founding member, which will get you access to private events with us. Um, We're planning one. No, we're planning one for later in November. And do you want to miss out? Probably not. I don't know. It's just like this in real time. Like you get access, basically. <laughs> you, you, maybe, you may provide us with some feedback. Yeah. You know, you just can't tell us to fuck off. That's all. I mean, you can, but then I'll just fucking kick you out of the thing. So, yeah. See? The enforcer. <laughs> the 
The enforcer has spoken. <laughs> called effective meeting management. <laughs> oh my god, this was fun. <laughs> uh, you'd think we'd been drinking, but we really haven't. No, I'm told like this is sobriety. I'm drinking. This water. is. Oh yeah, I'm drinking up like amino acids. <laughs> Listen, I have to f- my, make my body not hurt. Protein. Yeah. She needs protein, y'all. Didn't so, Erica, it? we will be back next week. Maybe I think we'll bring back misogynist of the week next Oh, week. my gosh. Why are you reading my mind? Because that's exactly what went through my mind. I'm like, I feel like we're missing misogynist of the week. Yeah. Misogynist yeah. of the week. We'll be back next week. Awesome. Can't wait. Enjoy your time in Toronto. And uh, I will talk to you later. Bye. Bye.